going to move into the 11th week of our series, 12 Words. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at 12 essentials of the spiritual life. We've actually been looking at them through their opposites. The boxes of junk that we have to unpack to get back to the basics about what spirituality was meant to be. And this week, we're actually going to talk about the essential that was the hardest for me to wrap my head around when I became a Christian. It just took me a long time to get it. And that is the essential of prayer. You see, I left the faith early in my life. And because of that, I missed out on some of that prime Christian education that everyone gets. And prayer just always seemed a little odd to me. It felt like I was talking to myself or we were at a dinner and it was just like, can we eat already? And I never really got the point. And it also usually had these similar patterns that I kind of found funny as a non-believing person. Like, for example, it would often feel like this long, over-the-top, aimless sermon that someone was giving that was kind of theologically suspect, too. You're like, Are you, what did you just say? It often reminded me of this in the years, especially in college. Dear, eight-pound, six-ounce, newborn infant Jesus, don't even know a word yet, just a little infant, so cuddly, mm. but still omnipotent. Mm. We just thank you for all the races I've won and $21.2 million. Woo! 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 Ow! Love that money that I have accrued over this past season, also due to a binding endorsement contract that stipulates I mentioned Powerade at each grace. I just want to say that Powerade is delicious, mm. and it, it cools you off on a hot summer day, and we look forward to Powerade's release of Mystic Mountain Blueberry. Mm. Thank you for all your power and your grace, dear baby God. Amen. 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 I have wanted to use that clip in a sermon forever. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And, and the sad truth, though, is that almost none of the ones I've been to have been that fun. Uh, they're usually just really boring, and I'm just like, I just want to eat Thanksgiving, y'all. Like, come on. And then when it wasn't that, it was usually something that I was always just a little skeptical of. Like, sometimes it was a way of someone telling someone else what they think about them without talking to said person. Like, dear Lord, we all know that Becky never does her job, but forgive her, and you're like... Or it was something that people always said, well, I do it in my car, and I'm like, that's wildly unsafe. Like, you're driving down Capitol Circle at 5 p.m., and you're just like, praise the Lord, and someone's probably going to die, so please don't do that. Or... It was something we do in crisis. We don't pray until it's help me, help me, help me. Or maybe we turn God into a cosmic gumball machine, put our prayers in to get the blessing out. Give me, give me, give me. Or at times, my favorite, someone would be like, if you pray, you can hold these snakes. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and these are fine. But I mean, not the snake one. Don't do that. Um, <laughs> But the other ones, it's like, it's fine. I'm not trying to make fun of you. I think prayer has infinite ways of being expressed, and it almost always has the potential to be meaningful. But I just never connected with these various forms of prayer. And because I didn't connect with them, I'll be honest, I just didn't do it. I just didn't get the point. So why would I? But when I came back to the church in my early 20s, I started having conversations with some teachers and some theologians that just changed how I viewed prayer over the years, and it has become an integral part of my life. You see, I came to understand prayer actually from this concept of human mirroring. 
Human beings have an amazing capacity to mirror and mimic what they observe. So we observe something, and we're wired to replicate it, to mirror it back, and then to change ourselves accordingly, to be more like it. If you think about it, this is why babies smile when you smile at them, or they learn to wave when you wave at them, or even that's how we learn to speak, a language. We mirror what we're hearing, and our brain is rewired in that process. And this goes on throughout our adult lives. We are just physiologically designed to learn by watching, changing, and then doing it ourselves. And I think that's awesome. And it was that shift that began to change how I understood prayer. You see, I began to realize that prayer maybe wasn't necessarily meant to change God's mind or to get what I wanted out of the world, but rather it was meant to change me. That maybe there's a way of understanding prayer where we come into contact with the presence and character of God, and we allow him to rewire us to be a little bit more like him. And this changed everything for me. What it really made me realize is that what prayer does is it unpacks our box for today. And the box that we're going to talk about is the box of spiritual separation between us and other people and our God. You see, I think as human beings, we create gaps between ourselves, other people, and God. We create these little pieces of separation of unlikeness. And then what we do is we fill those gaps with all the worst junk we can, don't we? Hate, judgmentalism, anger, shame. And I think it's prayer in this different way of understanding it that helps us close those gaps. And I think what it does is it helps us replace separation with union, with God and the people around us. And I want to explore this understanding of prayer through a prayer that you guys probably find incredibly boring, stale, or Catholic, but I promise you it's in the Bible, all you evangelicals out there, and it's the Lord's Prayer. It's the one that if you grew up in church, you've heard it so many times. And I think it kind of gets, it gets stale because we've heard it so much. But I think this prayer is powerful. It is a prayer that Jesus gives to his disciples. You find it in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. We're going to use the Gospel of Matthew today. And what Jesus does is he comes to them and he says, I'm going to teach you how to pray. The first thing you do is you go off by yourself because you're not trying to pray to impress the people around you. Has anyone ever heard those prayers? And if you haven't, you're the one doing it. Spoiler alert. And he says, so he says, get alone. It's all about you and God. It's not about other people to see you. And then he says, the other thing you do is you use few words. Don't try to manipulate God with your flowerly language. Like God's going to be like, well, he said 150 words and not 50, so here's the car. He says, use a few words. God knows what you need. It's about the relationship and the connection. And then he says, pray like this. And he gives us this prayer. It's actually Jesus' prayer. I think that's pretty cool in and of itself. But it's also an interesting prayer because what he is doing is he's adapting the sacred daily prayer of the Jewish people called the Kaddish. I won't make you say that. Don't worry. And what he does is he shifts it in these minute ways to make it a kingdom of God prayer, as we'll come to see. And I'm going to spend a lot of time geeking out about this. In fact, you're going to be like, I didn't know someone could talk that long, about five sentences. But it's going to happen. So get ready. Before we dive in, I want us all actually just to say it, though. 
I just want to get in our minds. I want to get in front of us. And then we're going to walk through what it might teach us, okay? So you guys will say it with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. So I want to take some time to really dissect this prayer. And the first thing I want you to notice is it's actually broken into three sections. There's a section about God, there's a section about what God is doing in the world, and then there's a section about us as disciples. And there's a flow to this. There's a movement that I think you're going to realize that's incredibly powerful. So the first part focuses on God. It it starts with an address, right? Our Father in heaven. And this works on twofold. The first thing is it's just a reminder that prayer is addressed in a direction. It is not just us talking to ourselves. We're not just alone in the room, kicking it and being crazy. It is meant to be directed at God. Direct relationship. More importantly than that, though, the name that he uses is super important in this prayer. It's the word translated in English as father. But in Jesus' language of Aramaic, it was Abba. And Abba, for us, is more like Pop-Pop or Daddy. It's an incredibly intimate, personal, and relational name that was not used by almost anyone at that time for the infinite God. So when Jesus uses the word Abba, what he's telling us is start your prayers every day with a remembering of God's character. What kind of God are we talking to? And it's a God that is loving, intimate, and present with us first and foremost. And then he moves into three your statements. And the first one focuses on the holiness of God. It says, hallowed be your name. And that sounds really weird in English. You're like, oh, Halloween, cool. Um, There's nothing to do with that. (laughs) Hallowed, basically what it means is to God, let us keep your name as holy. And holiness is a scary Christian word for a lot of people. But all it really means is, God, may we always glorify your name with respect and the honor that it deserves. And may the world come to do that also. But here's where it gets interesting. See, these your statements start to focus on this thing about God's rule and God's kingdom. I think this is where I start to geek out a little bit, so get ready. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done. And what does this mean? Like, is this not God's kingdom? I thought God was all-powerful and omnipotent baby. Like, how is he not in control? Well, for Jesus, the kingdom of God, that phrase, you might also see it, kingdom of heaven at times, is critically important to his ministry. You see, he talks about it a lot, like over and over and over again. And it was a big deal for Jesus' first century Jewish audience. You see, the Jewish people had come to see the world through a lens of competing kingdoms. They looked at their world, and in their present time, they saw all sorts of things gone wrong. God's ways have been rejected in favor of greed, violence, injustice, oppression. And when they looked at their own situation, they, the people of God, were under Roman rule, the pagan empire. And they looked at this and they said, clearly, God's purposes are not being fulfilled as they should be. And what they came to to say is that they were living in an in-between time. 
There was this moment in which God created the world, declared it good, and was with his people. There was a present time in which things had gone wrong and brokenness had entered our world. And then there was a future time where God would make all things right. And this would be a kingdom time when God would go about setting up his direct rule and kingdom over his world again. In other words, it was God's long-awaited future action to reclaim and heal this world by declaring his direct rule over it, establishing his kingdom, which would be defined by his will and his original intentions being fully realized in our world. Basically, God restoring our world and humanity to what he originally intended it to be. And they waited for this eagerly. And this was central to Jesus' ministry because that's precisely what Jesus said he was doing in the world. You read it over and over again. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is here now in me and what I'm doing in creation. And that allows us to understand the part of this prayer that I actually want to spend the most time on today. It's the phrase that focused on the where, this idea of space. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done, where? On earth as it is in heaven. And I think this is a huge turning point for the prayer. And to get why, we need to understand what Jesus means by the phrase heaven and earth. And how, quite frankly, we get them horribly wrong more often than not in the 21st century context. And to do that, as a seminary-trained pastor, I am going to use some hula hoops, as people often do. So in the 21st century American Christian context, we have come to understand heaven and earth as these entirely separate places. There is heaven, which is where God lives, and it's like a totally spiritual place that's really good, and it's over here. And then totally separated from that is earth which is like this totally physical place, and that's where evil and corruption reigns, and it's all sorts of bad stuff. And what we've come to understand is the entire purpose of us being here on earth is to get there to heaven. We escape this place to get to that place. That's it. And that's why Jesus came, to teleport us from here to there probably when we die. And basically, what that turns this prayer into is our Father who is in heaven, which is somewhere really far away, that we can't get to, maybe you could help us someday, but it probably won't happen before we die, so cool. Not very helpful. That's because there's a problem. This isn't how the Bible understands heaven and earth. You see, in the Bible, heaven and earth originally overlapped fully. We have this, this beautiful image of God resting directly with his people. And while they are distinguishable spaces later in the Bible, mostly distinguished by who rules and reigns in each one, the human space or the God space, they are not understood as being entirely separate. You see, the story of the Bible says that that original overlap got separated by human rebellion and independence, this desire to see our own rule and reign and kingdom made on earth and in our lives apart from God. But the entire biblical story from that beginning point on is God increasingly bringing that overlap back. You see, if you read the Bible, yes, it gets separated in the beginning, but over and over again in the Bible, God progressively brings his presence 
into our reality where the heavens and the earth overlap. We see it in the burning bush. We see it in the tabernacle in the desert. We see it in God's temple. All places where God said he reigned and ruled and lived directly with his people again. In the story of the Bible, the goal of God in the Bible is to get us back to this. The reunion, the full reuniting of God's space and human space, heaven and earth. So when Jesus says, God, we want your kingdom, we want your will on earth as it is in heaven, when he declares that God's kingdom is here now, he isn't praying that we go somewhere else someday. He is praying for the full reuniting of those spaces He is praying for the union of heaven and earth under God's rule to become increasingly recognized here in the present reality. And Jesus saw this as taking place in his ministry. Wherever there was a restored relationship with God, Abba, through Jesus and other human beings, overlap in union of heaven and earth in that space. Wherever there were renewed people seeking to hollow God's name as it was intended to be, union of heaven and earth overlapping in that space. Wherever the rule and the will of God was becoming realized here on earth now in the restored lives and relationships of a renewed people living under his kingdom, union of heaven and earth in that space. You see, wherever you found those things taking place according to Jesus, there you found the divine space crashing into the human space in that very moment. Right here, right now. There you found little pockets of the kingdom of God on earth. And this is why the second half of the prayer focuses on us. Because Jesus sets up this flow, this movement of who God is, what God is doing, how he's building his kingdom. And he says, you want to know what it looks like to live in it? Let me show you how. First, give us this day our daily bread. This is a reference to the Old Testament story of God's people wandering in the desert, the wilderness where there was no food, there was no water. How did they stay alive? Well, the story goes, God gave them manna, this thing called the bread of heaven, daily. Their very sustenance for existing at all. Every day, God provided. So Jesus references this story in his daily prayer, and he says simply, remember daily God's gracious provision of everything. That everything in our life is a gift, including your existence. Did you choose to wake up today? It's a gift. You see, for Jesus, the kingdom person is first and foremost defined by daily and deep gratitude. It is a life of gratitude for all of this. And he gives us a prayer that asks us to remember daily that it's a gift. And I think that's because it's both good for us to do that, but also because Jesus saw that as making us more generous. Because quite frankly, if I see everything I have all of my life as something that I did not earn, that was unearned, it was a gift, it was given, that I'm more likely to give it away for something better. I'm more likely to give it away for the building of his kingdom instead of my own, aren't I? Gratitude leading to generosity. Second, Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In other translations, you might see, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Jesus is clear here. This is like the easiest one to explain. 
You can't have the kingdom without forgiveness and mercy. You just can't. He says that they are so central to what God is doing in our world that you just don't even know what the kingdom is without grace. So he gives us a daily reminder that we are called to break the cycle of wounding and retaliation that has defined human history, that has defined our space until this point. He says the reality of Christ is cosmic forgiveness. And that kingdom reality is meant to overflow and pour into our reality through us, a people who are willing to be little pockets of divine mercy, little pockets of inhuman grace, little pockets of a new kingdom. I think we learn to do this by taking time to reflect daily that we have all been forgiven much by God, by other people. If you don't think that's true, just ask your mom. And if you understand that you've been forgiven much, that should make you into someone who can forgive much. Becoming kingdom people who break the cycles of retaliation and violence that crush our world with divine mercy daily. And finally, Jesus says, do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is better translated as testing instead of temptation. It's a recognition that living in this kingdom reality now, actually trying to live this out, it's going to be hard. And it's probably going to cost you a lot because this world isn't fully transformed yet. And I don't know about you, but when I try to break those cycles that bind our world, they tend to fight back, don't they? Jesus' path to the kingdom led him to a cross. And Jesus reminds us that the kingdom now is not comfortable. And it's certainly not a life without suffering. But we remember that God is defined by being loving, present, holy, powerful, and as a builder of a new kingdom here and now. Which means that he's there in those sufferings too. We remember that our story is one of suffering followed by resurrection. And we know that though God does not promise to keep us from suffering, he is present in it, he is working through it, and he is redeeming it with us in it. And the other side of it is resurrected life or a resurrected world. You see, I think we learn trust when we pray this daily. We become people who remember daily that our God is a God who suffers, a God on a cross, a God who is not afraid to say, I am there too. And if we remember that daily and we remember what he did on the other side of his sufferings, maybe we learn to trust a little bit more in our sufferings, that God delivers. And I mean, this changed prayer for me entirely, this new understanding. It's not a rote religious ritual. It is a profound invitation of union, an invitation for us to reorient our daily lives to a God who is renewing this world here and now, which means that this prayer reminds me that we are called to be a people where heaven and earth overlap in us, in our lives, and how we live lives with a daily commitment to gratitude, generosity, Forgiveness, mercy, trust, and deliverance. That's the kingdom. That's the invitation. 
And I believe that this form of prayer ends up acting as a spiritual mirroring of sorts. I believe that if I do this daily, if I practice this, I'm going to come into contact with that God of that story, and I'm going to start reflecting him a little bit more in my world. I'm going to be a little bit more like him. And I think for, that, for me, that's good news. I also believe, though, that Jesus gave us this prayer to pray daily because he knew that we lived in the midst of competing kingdoms, kingdoms separate from God's kingdom, ones we often mirror without even knowing it. And those kingdoms are constantly challenging my loyalties, and they're trying to separate me from being that overlap of heaven and earth. You see, I think that this box separation gets filled up every day for me by these competing kingdoms. I don't know about you, but I often find myself in a kingdom that lies to me about who God is and what he has done, a kingdom of shame and self-loathing, the tapes that play in my head when I'm not still. You see, I think I hold on to an understanding of God sometimes that was given to me as a child, that he hated me, that he was out to get me, that he couldn't love someone like me. And that kingdom always seeks to separate me from who God is. It tells me to forget who he is, that he's not the God I've read about in this book, that he's not the God I found in prayer. He says, you can't trust him. He's dangerous to someone like you. So Jesus gives me a prayer that tells me every day who he is. He is first and foremost a God who chooses to go by the name of Abba. Father, intimate, close, present. And when I pray to that God daily, my thoughts about him tend to get a little rewired each day. But more than that, I actually find myself in a separate kingdom that tries to lie to me about who I am, who I'm called to be, what I'm called to do in this world. And that's the kingdom of the 21st century American dream. You see, that kingdom is far more the air I breathe daily than God's kingdom when I'm not being intentional. And that kingdom, while it has some good characteristics, is not one and the same with God's kingdom. Don't mean to burst that bubble. You see, God's kingdom tells me that self-sacrifice and self-forgetting is the pathway to union. This kingdom tells me that it's about taking what I want and getting what's mine. God's kingdom tells me that human dignity and value is inherent. This kingdom tells me that it's earned, that those lower than me on that social status are somehow less than me. This kingdom is defined deeply by the idea that peace comes from consumption and the idol of more, more, more. And God's kingdom tells me that it's on the other side of gratitude, generosity, and self-sacrificial service to others. God's kingdom tells me to expect suffering, but that it can be faced, it can be redeemed, it can be resurrected, this kingdom tells me it's something to be avoided at all costs, no matter who I hurt trying to do it, because my God is comfort. And when I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done daily, well, I find that my priorities start to shift. See, what I find is I start to see with my eyes and hear with my ears a little bit more of what God's kingdom is trying to do here and now in our world. And that's almost always better than my little American kingdom and what it's trying to do here and now in the world. And finally, 
I find that my box of separation gets filled by separation from other people every day. It becomes so easy for us to start seeing that gap between me and you, me and my fellow human beings. All of us can start to look at other human beings without meaning to. We can start seeing them as other than us. We can start believing that we are superior, more important, more worthy of respect and dignity. So easily, I find myself defining my identity by negative comparisons. I look at someone different than myself, I judge them, and I find my identity in being better than that. See, what I tend to do when I don't think about it is I begin to define myself by not being like those people. My entire identity becomes I am me because I am not you. You ever see that in our society these days? The defining of who we are by who we are not? And I think that just makes us sick. I think some of the nastiest, cruelest things I've seen in this world come from that mentality. Prayer invites me into an identity of unearned belovedness, an identity given by grace. It tells me that my identity is simply a beloved child of God and that any time I take away from that or I add to that, I'm filling up that box more likely than not. And when I ground myself in that identity each day, guess what? It's easier for me to see other people with that identity each day. Because I'm reminded every morning that I will not come across a single person in this world who does not bear the image of God. And that should fundamentally change how I interact with that. You see, what I come to find with this prayer is it's not me and you. It's not us and them. It's just us. It's just union. We need daily prayer, prayers of the kingdom, prayers of Christ, prayers of union, so we can keep this box unpacked. I think prayer invites us to reorient our entire lives around a God who's building a kingdom much bigger and greater than ourselves, here, now. The union and overlap of heaven and earth. So before we close, I want to actually just take time to distill this, to break this down in just four lessons to send you out with this week about what this means for prayer. Because I think for me, it changes the way I usually think about it or how I grew up thinking about it. I think lesson one is that prayer is both a relationship and an intentional discipline. I think we like the idea that prayer is just me and God gabbing about. And it is that. He is our Father. He is Abba. But it also needs to be something we practice with intentionality because I don't know if you're like me. If I don't do it intentionally as a discipline, I just don't do it. And I want to ask you, how many of your deepest relationships are with people that you only talk to when you feel like it? How many of your deepest relationships are defined by you never spending intentional time with them? I think if we want deep union with God, we need to do it with intentionality and discipline. I do my prayers the same time, the same place, every day if I can. Because I know I need to. And I know it changes me. Second lesson, we sometimes need to be taught to pray. You see, I think most of us don't want this either. If prayer is us just talking with God, then why are you telling me how to do it? 
There's this one problem, though. We learn by mirroring. We learn by seeing, replicating, doing. You can't mirror what you've never seen. So we need to come into contact with teachers to be our mirrors. I mean, there are hundreds of years of time-tested prayers, strategies, disciplines, styles of doing it that you just don't know until you seek it out. I know that I only started to pray well when someone taught me how to do it. I don't think the disciples come to Jesus and they teach us how to pray because we don't have to do that too. I think we have to be, we have to be taught. If you're not being taught, why not? Why haven't you found a teacher? Someone a little farther along. A third lesson. Spoken prayer is good. I'm okay with that. I'm not telling you not to do it. But we also need prayers of listening, quiet, silence, and presence. You see, have you ever been in a relationship where the other person does all the talking? I mean, they just don't shut up and you never get to speak. We all, well, again, if you don't know that person, it's you. Let me just start there. <laughs> and God is a God of grace. Uh, but, like, we know about that. We know that's not good in human relationships, and yet we do it to God all the time. Our prayers are just, give me, give me, give me, tell me, tell me, tell me, help me, help me, help me, and he never is allowed to get a word in edgewise. I think we need to listen in our prayer, and you only listen when you stop talking for a second. Silence, solitude. We need prayers that help us hear God speak and that whisper of love that he so often speaks with. Do you practice things like intentional silence, retreat, solitude, meditation, because I think if you're not trying to listen, you're probably not being changed by your prayer life, are you? And the fourth lesson is that I believe that prayer must move us daily out of our kingdom and will and into his kingdom and will. You see, if our prayers are not changing our desires, our hopes, our intentions, our motivations in the world, then we need to rethink why and how we're doing them. Our prayers should grow us in our capacity for kingdom living now. Growing to see our life as a gift so we can be more generous. Growing to see ourselves as forgiven so we can be more forgiving. Growing in our capacity to find God in the midst of our suffering so we can grow in our ability to trust. Maybe find deliverance or be that deliverance for someone else. The Franciscan friar Richard Rohr says it better than I could. He says, prayer is sitting in silence until it silences us, choosing gratitude until we are grateful, and praising God until we ourselves are an act of praise. I just think that's beautiful. This is the vision of prayer that changed everything for me. It taught me that there was a way that I could find God in that act of mirroring and be a little bit more like him in my world. And I want to close with a story about Jesus that I think captures the power of this prayer more than any other. Because Jesus didn't just talk about prayer. You see, he showed us what it looks like. At the end of his ministry, Jesus came to Jerusalem. 
And he came into conflict with the religious elite. He came into conflict with the Roman Empire, and he knew where it was heading, to a Roman cross. And the night before he's arrested, the night before he is tortured and executed, he goes off alone in a lonely place, and he prays in this place called the Garden of Gethsemane. And it's this heartbreaking, profound scene about Jesus. It's the most human, I believe, we see him in the Gospels. He is overwhelmed with grief and sorrow, it says, at what is to come. And what does he do? He prays. He reads, we read that he, three times he prays the same prayer to God. He says, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me. He relies on the Lord's Prayer, if you notice that. Abba, Father, I trust you. Deliver me from suffering, from the testing. And much is said and debated theologically about what takes place in the gaps between him doing this three times the exact same way. Some people are like, well, Jesus is just trying to show us what to do. Because he's like, robot Jesus must go to a cross. Like, and it's not like this human moment of fear. Other people argue that in each moment, God reassures his spirit. He says, it's going to be fine. Hang in there, buddy. Resurrection's coming. It's just going to be a couple of nails. Don't worry about it. But I believe that in that moment, for the first time in Jesus' life, he reached out to God, and there was silence in response. God, take this cup from me. Crickets. And he has to make a choice, a true moment of trust must take place in that space. Am I going to stay true to God's will? Am I going to face what is to come? Do I trust this God? And how does he respond? The prayer ends simply and profound me, not my will, but your will be done. And he goes forward, he faces his calling, he stays true, he trusts and he's delivered on the other side of that cross. Jesus doesn't just tell us how to pray, he shows us. See, in a moment of crisis, he shows us that true trust looks like this, not my will, but your will be done. And I don't think he just magically woke up able to do that. I think he developed it through a life defined by union. That he had done the work of a committed life of daily prayer so well a life rewired entirely around the intimate relationship with Abba, trust in his kingdom, the seeking of his will, and a life dedicated fully to being where heaven and earth overlapped. I think he developed that, that relationship every day, so that when the time came, he could face his trials and he knew who God is. He knew what his God was trying to do in this world. And he was able to be the kingdom. And I think he invites us to do that too. To with real depth in the best and worst moments of our life say, not my will, but your will be done. That's union. That's the purpose of prayer. That's essential spirituality. We're going to close by doing the Lord's Prayer together again as the Lord's people. And this time, maybe it won't be so rote. Maybe we'll approach it with new eyes, new ears, 
and a new heart. Will you say it with me? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen.